Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Alright, welcome back to Walking with Freya. I have to start with an apology, which is kind of my thing that my friends harass me about but yeah this episode was supposed to come out yesterday and it did not obviously I have been really sick the last couple days I think actually a cold with an allergy attack on top so you can probably hear it in my voice so uh, hopefully it's not too annoying to listen to but uh, it's what I got it's what I got so here we go I'm going to keep this introduction short and I did not type it up like I usually do. So I'm going to kind of wing it. I'm going to keep myself contained so I don't ramble too much. So we'll start with PWS Awareness Month. It's still happening for the entire month of May. And I have put out some good resources and some places to check out. So if you want to educate yourself a little bit more or use those to educate other people, that would be fantastic. There is fpwr.org. That's the Foundation for Prader-Willi Research. There is PWCF, Prader-Willi California Foundation, pwcf.org. And there is pwsausa.org is uh, the National Association. So those are all three fantastic organizations and websites to find information and also to support and donate to. So if you want to do something like that for uh, Prader Willie Awareness Month, that would be fantastic. Any of those organizations would be super stoked for your support. As would I. <laughs> if you wanted to support the podcast by rating and reviewing us on your podcast app or telling a friend, write a review, put it, uh, you know, submit it to iTunes or wherever you listen. All of that stuff would be fantastic. And tell a friend or if you're in a Facebook group, mention the podcast. Just help spread the word so we get some more beautiful stories and we get this community growing. Now, I also want to mention that uh, I forgot to mention this last week. So if you're local and you're just not hearing about this, I apologize. But May 30th, I am hosting or facilitating a writing workshop for parents of children with special needs parents and caregivers, someone asked if a sibling could come, and I say absolutely if the sibling is old enough to be in that kind of a situation where it's an hour and a half, we'll be talking about what we have in our lives that help us kind of process this journey that we're on and how maybe writing can be one of those tools that we use to help guide us on this journey. And then we'll do some writing, and there's child care is provided, and this is a free offering donations would be amazing, you know, if you have anything to share. So that is May 30th, but the registration is due today. So I'm going to extend that to like Friday night. I think that should be okay. So if you are listening to this in the next couple of days and you want to do it, definitely 
sign up for that. I'd love to have you. You can, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. And then also you can check out the website and fricky.com backslash offerings backslash. And then I'll take you to the online registration. And we just need, there's, we only have 12 spots available for, for people to participate. And then we need to know what we're going to need for childcare. Um, so yeah, I really hope that more people sign up. I have a few people signed up and I will say honestly that, um, when I first put it out there, I had some friends that I knew were interested and I told them, you know, okay, I'm getting ready to put this out there and, you know, there's only 12 spots available, so you should sign up, you know, right now so you don't lose a spot. Because I had, I realized, much higher expectations of how this would be received. And I'm curious as to why. So I would love to get some feedback because I am here in this uh, closet of mine speaking to you all. And, you know, I get emails back or, you know, um, posts on Instagram or whatever, or comments on Instagram. And so I get feedback that way. And I love that. I always love the feedback. And I'm interested to know if people think that talking about bringing writing into your life as a way of processing your experiences and your journey, is that something that you're interested in? Is that something that calls you? Maybe not. You know, I've had a few of my friends, you know, when I told them that I wasn't quite getting the response that I thought I would get, you know, they said, well, you know, not everybody's a writer and not everybody feels comfortable writing or maybe they don't really understand what it is you're offering. So I'm just curious if you have any feedback. Is is it just something that people aren't interested in or is it something that maybe I'm not being clear about what it is? that I hope to bring to the table with this workshop and like with this writing journal. Because for me, writing is crucial to my sanity. Like I I would not be where I am today without it. No, just for my level of understanding and appreciation, it's been really crucial. And so is that something that, that calls to you or that you can relate to? Or maybe there's something else in your life. So I know that there are some women who are not local that have said they would be interested in doing a writing workshop if I was in their area, Uh, but maybe it could be an online thing. So I don't know. I would just, I would love to, I feel like I'm at the point where I would like to get some feedback on what it is people would be interested in or not interested in. So if you are willing to give me some feedback, you can email me at walkingwithfreya at gmail.com. And so I think that's it. So now we'll just get, you know, right into today's interview. This interview is with a woman named Rebecca. She is a mom to a son with Prader-Willi syndrome. And this is just a beautiful and honest talk about her experience. We talk about the world of the NICU. We talk about siblings. We talk about the diagnosis story and all the feelings and the emotions that, that come with that. And we talk about what we hope for the future what the future holds. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation and I hope that you've been enjoying the other conversations and that you are learning a little bit about PWS if you don't already know it. And if you are in the PWS community, I hope that hearing these stories is helping you feel some sense of camaraderie and realization that we, there's a lot of us here and we're doing this together. So Thank you for your patience, and thank you all for being here. 
So hi, Rebecca. Thanks for um, coming on the podcast and telling us about your experience. And so just to let everybody know, you have a son named Joey, who mm -hmm. is eight years old, and he has Prader-Willi syndrome, which is what yep. Freya has. And I talk a lot about it on the podcast. So, um, you know, I think people are pretty familiar with the syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, do you have other children or is he an only child? I do. Yeah. I have another son, Emil, who just turned six. So they're almost two years apart. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got a little brother who sometimes thinks he's the big brother. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> so. I, well, I have that too. I have, well, I have an older child and then I have one that is uh, a daughter that's 16 and a half months younger than Freya. So, mm -hmm. yep. You know, it's just kind of yeah. it's interesting to, in my experience, you know, Rona, I'm, the big one for us was that Rona started walking before Freya, mm, and, but mm -hmm, it was like mm -hmm. Freya was right after that because she was like, mm -hmm. oh wait, I'm supposed to be doing that? Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely interesting, not just to see how they've developed in a completely different way in terms of interests and, you know, what they like to do in their free time, but also as they're a little bit older now, watching each other in terms of what they're, they're individually good at and how the other tries to be like their sibling and, you know, can't always do those same things, but just like a general sense of like, oh, I see someone over there doing that. And, you know, that's interesting. And, you know, Joey always has loved books. He always loves looking at books, reading books. And, you know, Emil for a while, because he didn't know how to read, you know, would get very frustrated and, and jealous in a lot of sense. But now that he's in kindergarten, he's learning to read. And so just the other day I saw, I looked out in the living room and I saw Emil over there in the corner, just kind of looking through books on his own, which was really interesting. But that's what he's seen Joey do for, you know, all of his time. And so just I'm, they don't even know what they're doing, but just as they're watching <laughs> right. the other person's kind of interests feed over into their own space is, is definitely kind of cool since they're close enough in age to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do they get along well? They do. They more so, I'd say probably in the last year than before. And I think it really, now that they're both in the same elementary school, whereas previously Joey was in elementary school and Emma was still in preschool, you know, they were on different schedules. They were, you know, just doing different things throughout the day. And I think as Emma has come into kindergarten this year, they ride the bus to school, to and from school together, which has been really great. Um, Joey rides the special services bus to school. And it was very important to me that I kept him on that. But when Emma was coming into the school system this year. I'm like, oh man, I don't want them to be on separate buses. I don't want Joey to be on a bus that's full of kids. Um, so we were able to get that dynamic worked out, which was really great. And now, yeah, they can kind of they get on the bus together. They come home together. Um, so I think that's really helped Emil and definitely learning, learning to read and be able to start doing math. So I think he's got a better sense of um, what he can do himself, and that's helped them get along better. They can talk about things more. They can look at the same math program together, whereas before they just were kind of in different places. Um, and I think that would really frustrate Emil because he thought Joe was better than him at things, and uh. you know that's not the case. But and they they've always played together relatively well. Um, and I think yeah, as they're getting older, I'm I'm excited to watch them develop into more of like a you know a, a brotherhood and a friendship. Um, and, you know, start to think about how Emil can, we've tried to have more direct conversations with Emil lately about, you know, this is your brother and you've got to take care of him, even though you're the younger brother. And I think as he gets older, he's going to see that a little bit more, you know, the social aspect of it and the 
the physical aspect of it. And, you know, that's the expectation I have for it, for, for both of them, but really for Emil is like, he's, he's got some caregiving to help us do when he's in school and we can't be there in school. So, um, so yeah, things are evolving and changing, but I think growing in a good way so far. I mean, they, they definitely fight, <laughs> it, yeah. you know, like all, like all siblings do, but, um, I think they, they respect each other and they appreciate each other, even though they'd never tell you that. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I feel like I, I like to start with kind of the diagnosis story, but we got right into sibling. Sure. And I think that um, we can come back to that maybe. So let's, can we talk a little bit about like the diagnosis and, and yeah. Joey himself and kind of get a yeah. picture of who he is? Yeah, so, so how old was he when he got diagnosed? He was three weeks old um, and he was born five weeks early. Um, and, and so, you know, we were still in the NICU and, you know, weren't even, weren't even to his actual due date when we got the diagnosis. So just kind of that whole general time period, um, with lots of ups and downs and unknowns and uncertainties and tests and, you know, the NICU itself, which is a very, um, emotional place. Um, and, you know, just like, you're not like in the real world during that time, like people are there 24 hours a day and you have to do all this prep before you even get in. And then when you come out and it's quiet, but there's yet all these noises and there's just a lot of kind of, I mean, it's a very uncertain place, right? I mean, there's people there for different reasons and you're not sure what their reason are, but you know, and what the, what the next day will even be like and what the stability of your own child will be, who the nurses will be. There's always, you know, they have their own shift schedule and you kind of get a sense of, oh, such and such is on, this is their shift. And I really like them because you're spending so much time together. So it's just kind of this weird, um, very unique place that I think you can only understand and respect and appreciate if you've spent some time there. And, um, you know, to be in that place on top of eventually getting the diagnosis, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. In one sense, it was a place of security and like you, you have good faith that, that Joey's getting taken care of, but also, you know, you can't like when you walk in, it's that hallway of these are our NICU, you know, all stars. And this is the picture of them as a preemie all the way to, you know, a high school graduating. And so it's a very hopeful place, but there's also Mm -hmm. totally a doom and gloom part about it and you know I know Joe would just wake up sometimes in the middle of the night at like midnight and be like I'm gonna go visit Joey like you know you just you're not with your child all the time right. and that sucks but you you could totally do that if you wanted to so um so yeah he was he was about three weeks old when he was diagnosed and it was the end of a whole bunch of other testing you know he um he was my first child, so I had no sense of what really a pregnancy is supposed to feel like, look like. I mean, yeah, they talk about movement, but, you know, if you have nothing to compare it to, you don't know at that time that the child's not moving in the way that they're supposed to be, and all the checkups are healthy, everything looks fine, you're a healthy person yourself, and then, you know, your water breaks one day while you're in the middle of uh, your office, you know, finishing a meeting, and <laughs> you stand up thinking you, oh. you've, you've, you know, peed a little bit, and then you're like, nope, this is not stopping, you know, something's happening, um, and we, we had been going to a birth center, and so we were looking to have that particular experience, and we talked about a water birth, and, you know, that's the kind of the process that you're expecting, and so I think in a lot of ways, too, you start off the situation with, like, you're starting off with a loss, you know, you go to the birth center, and they say, you know, we can't, 
we can't deliver the child here. Like we don't do early births, you know, you have to be so far along. And so you've kind of, we had sort of been preparing for like a non-hospital experience for particular reasons. And now you're just getting shoved into a hospital experience with a lot of uncertainty and unknown about what they're going to push and what their goals are and what that experience is going to be like. So, um, and just the, the, the nervousness of like, Oh my goodness, a child is coming. Like this is happening. I don't even, I literally don't even have a car seat. Like we weren't really sure <laughs> which one we were going to get quite yet. Um, wow. So yeah, I mean, just all the happening and then the childbirth experience itself, um, which is a lot. And, and Joe was born at 420 in the morning. So, you know, it was an overnight experience too. And then, you know, at the beginning, everything's fine. And then it's just kind of that once that initial, um, you know, situation wears off that they're like, well, you know, something's not quite right. And, you know, just going through the whole process of, is it this, is it that, is let's do this test, let's do that test. And, um, the pediatrician would come around and there was also a neo, I think, I think it was a neonatologist is the, is the right, um, position that, so, you know, you're just flooded with all of these specialists that are trying to figure Mm -hmm. out and, and solve this problem. And then someone, I think it was the neonatologist had said, you know, Prader-Willi syndrome. And we're like, well, you know, what the heck is that? You know, never heard of that before. And, and they talked about the physical features, you know, we're seeing some of the things that look similar and the floppy baby syndrome and um, all of those. Um, and I think, you know, that was kind of the first real introduction to it where our pediatrician prior to that had been very like, oh, this is going to work itself out. Like we see this, like sometimes kids are just slow to wake up. You know, when he was early, you know, he still just wanted to bake a little bit more. Like, so just kind of not necessarily a 180, but just different perspectives and different approaches to it. And she said, you know, we want to do this testing. And uh, I was like, okay, you know, at this point, we've got no other confirmation, not really sure what to do. But of course, like most people, when an actual clinical term is thrown out, you Google it and, <laughs> you know, right. And it's just like, awful you know just Mm. a pit in your pit in your stomach and just despair and you know just like this is going to be terrible and you're never going to leave a normal lead a normal life and the child's never going to lead a normal life and you know this is just worst case scenario and you know I, I also vividly remember my dad had a um like he he was he really wanted to try to learn and like equip himself with awareness about the syndrome and so he got a little binder and he printed off articles about it and he like stacked a binder set and then he got himself to a place where he was just like I can't do that anymore that's not healthy and it's not positive and I'm just not gonna look at all of that and I think we all kind of came to that in our own sense eventually just at different times so they did the testing and um at that point you know all we had known was just the scary stuff about it and I think you know my husband's a philosopher and so I I vividly remember sitting in the car with him outside the hospital and he was you know he tried to kind of put it in words I think that he could understand and he was like this to me like what you read about the syndrome you know the the no hunger drive and then the complete opposite um and you know and, and the other parts of the syndrome he's like it sounds like something you would read about in Greek mythology like this almost does not seem like literally real like how how can all of these different components be a part of a syndrome that affects an individual in this particular way and i think the cruelty of it when you first read of the no hunger drive to the hyperphagia like that that switch 
is just like, why would, why would a God create something like this? Like what, what the heck, you know? Um, so I remember, you know, we had that conversation of just, you know, we, you can't really wrap your head around it. You know, it, it's so multifaceted. Um, so I'm like visiting Joey by myself and, and his station was like right when you walked into the NICU, it was on the left. So it wasn't, you know, a couple hallways back. It was just like right there front and center. And the doctor came over and you know, she pulled up a chair and she's like, well, we've, we've got the genetic testing back. And, uh, you know, she was like, it's confirmed proud or willy and you know emotions and hormones are just out of control and I just remember like just straight up broke down you know just Mm. sobbed and you know screaming in a sense of just just like that despair that you think your child is is going to have you know you know no different you can't see you don't have a crystal ball you can't see into the future and you're just all you've been thinking about and introduced to so far is how terrible this mm. this situation is and so you know I remember they put up the um like this the little like divider you know like oh let's try to give her some privacy also she's making a scene <laughs> for other <laughs> parents um and Joe I'm not sure where Joe was um and so they were like do you need us to call him to come get you you know can you drive like I was like calm down and so I I called I like eventually calmed down enough to drive, but I'm also probably too stubborn to be like, I will drive myself. You are not driving me, you know, home. Um, So went home and got him. And, you know, it was, I think what helped me kind of get out of that dark period, um, at least in that moment was Joe just said, you know, like, all right, this is this. And we're going to, we're going to make the best of it and we're going to do our best for him and with him and we're going to create a great life for him. And, you know, I think some days it's difficult to see that even eight years later with like, now that you know this child even more and you see sometimes the struggle and the challenges, but I think that's true with all kids. I mean, I feel the same way for Emil sometimes um, and his own, you know, different needs, but you know, it kind of helped us pull out of it. And then, and then they start layering on top, you know, the support. Okay, here's this social worker. Here's this. Here's that. Here, apply for Medicaid. Do all of these things. And so it really, the pendulum really swings in a way that I think I couldn't see at that time that a diagnosis helped do. You know, because before when you don't know anything, no one knows really how to help. So having a, a diagnosis gets you the resources that you need. It gets you set up for, you know, somebody came in to give him PT when he was a couple weeks old, you know, and, and so all that early intervention is possible, but it's difficult to see that moment when you're in that place of, you know, just true, true sadness and grieving and, and loss. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then ironically, we left. So, so once we knew that, and then, you know, we were able to move forward and start talking about a G-tube and the Mickey button, because at that time, he had just had the feeding tube in his nose. But the the doctor was like, you know, you can do that. But also the, the Mickey button um, is helpful because it doesn't create the potential for a lot of sensory issues on their face. You know, like, I know it's, it's difficult to think about surgery, but, you know, really, this is probably going to be a better thing. So then we had to move to a different children's hospital. Um, and so we were kind of getting ready to wrap up at that uh, NICU and then go on to the other NICU um, in a different part of the States for that surgery where different people could help. So once we got through all of that, you know, the irony was that he, he left 
the hospital. He was discharged and we could finally come home on the day that he was actually due. So, you know, just that five week period of, um, of ups and downs and ebbs and flows, you know, there is, I think for us, like there was a bit of closure that like he was, he got to come home on April 27th, the day that he was actually due. Oh, um, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, kind of, full circle in a lot of sense. And, you know, we just like, I just remember how excited we were to just get him outside and be like, Oh my God, fresh air. Like we are just (laughs) like, and, and we came in the end we're like, we, you know, the discharge process as with everything, you know, when you're in a hospital, like, okay, we'll just work on that paperwork and we'll, we'll be right back. And it's like four hours, you know, Mm -hmm. and they've done nothing and no one, they're just balancing a lot of stuff, but it's not a sense of urgency. And for us, it was a real sense of urgency because the the sun was going down and it was April in Delaware. So it was still, you know, like it wasn't summer by any chance. It was still a little chilly, but like, we just wanted to go outside before the sunset and just get some fresh air. And, you know, we were able to do that, you know, very, very briefly, but we went to a, a park that was really meaningful to us. And, you know, we just have this really great picture of the three of us um, together. And, you know, it's probably, definitely one of my favorites because like that was really the start of of it you know and we had come out of this dark time and I think we knew we were still going to be in a dark time but we at least had some resources and some tools to help us move forward um which was helpful you know it 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 helped start to increase the hope factor (laughs) as opposed to just that time in the hospital where people are just like I'm not sure how about we do this test you know, mm-hmm. how about we stick a needle in his forehead because we've come uh, so many other places, you know, and they need to get an IV somewhere else. And you're just like, okay, you know, um, like, wh- what do you say? So, um, yeah. And just to like hold the child without all those mm-hmm. um, monitors and those cords where you're just like so tentative to even touch them because you don't want to mess something up or squeeze something too much so it was very liberating I guess for for all of us and and even for little Joey though you know his body didn't really quite know anything different right right yet just yet Mm. so yeah so that's that's you know the diagnosis story you know in a nutshell I know it's still kind of (laughs) long no it's great we did not have the experience of being in the NICU and that's something I've talked about I mean I think Freya was a cesarean. It was, she was supposed to be a home mm. birth, ended up mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. Kind of an emergency cesarean. Mm. And we were in the hospital for five days and then we came mm-hmm. home and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, for two weeks, it was terrifying because I, right, I mean, the right. midwives were coming every day and they were weighing her and I was getting her to the pediatrician and, but nobody had an answer as nobody was saying. Right she needs to be in the hospital. So we were at home just struggling to try and feed her. And and I've told that story before. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it was, so we didn't have that. And there is a part of me that's really grateful that we didn't have that, you know, even though it was terrifying, but we got to be at home every night. I just wore her. I was, you know, I was naked. She was naked. We, right. Right. Was she able to breastfeed or bottle feed or? So I tried breastfeeding. I mean, Mm -hmm. I struggled. She would, and that's Mm -hmm. how she got to go home because my milk came in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was just kind of pouring out of me. And so she was right. doing it without having to work for it. So she gained enough weight to go home. Right. Sure. So then we went home and then she started, and then my milk, because she wasn't actually sure. nursing my sure. milks, you know, I ended up pumping for like seven months, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the lactation, I, I had a, I scheduled an appointment with a lactation consultant and my, the night before my husband said, she's going to tell you to use a bottle. 
And I got so annoyed. I was like, she's a lactation consultant. She's not going to tell me to use a bottle. That's not her job. Right. Right. (laughs) And that was like, she watched uh, Freya trying to nurse and she was like, I think you need to try a bottle. Right. And watching Freya get that, like the first bottle she got like two ounces down quickly. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, it was like a Hmm. miracle. It was Hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, well, did um, she have to do, did she, she didn't have to do any like, like a swallow study or anything. And maybe, I mean, Joey was never able to breastfeed, never able to take a bottle. So the Mickey button also was like, this is how we have to get nutrients in him. But then before we could even consider food, he had to go through all these swallow studies and the barium dye and all that nonsense. Right. So yeah, as far as a swallow study, I mean, I, and this is one thing that I always say, like if we, um, if we lived in a bigger place, had a bigger hospital, had, you know, I think things maybe would have been a little different, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and was that when you were in Evansville? Is that where she was born? No, no. Oh. Uh, no, this is in, I've been in Northern California now for um, oh, oh, okay. 18 years. So, but it's, it's gotcha. a rural area. It's, you know, we're like 300 miles North of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It was a small mm-hmm. hospital. I mean, you know, we were well taken mm-hmm. care of, but I think, you know, uh-huh. it's just not routine. So right. people usually get right. um, flown out of here for serious mm, things. Mm-hmm. So um, sure. But yeah. So what? Can you explain the Mickey button? I've never heard of that. Oh sure, yeah. So it was a basically like a port that is. So he had surgery and it, and they cut open. You know down in his stomach, like not right next to his belly button, but in that general area. And, you know, it was literally like, I guess somehow they had made a hole down into his stomach in the part of your stomach that food would go into. And so then it literally had like a little flap to it. And then, so when he, um, when we left the AI DuPont Children's Hospital, that's where he got that surgery. And then we had to learn how to use the feeding equipment before we left, of course. So it was very similar to you have an IV bag where you would, you know, put in the IV and connect to a, um, you know, to a port on a, on a patient or like a needle. So he had um, his Mickey button, you'd open it up, you would connect literally this cord into this part of his stomach. And then it was like a feeding tube that would feed back out up into the feeding bag, which was hanging on um, like an IV type of pole. And so for four months, I pumped and put breast milk into that. So I was still feeling like, okay, I'm like connecting in some way, even though there's, yeah, like you're saying that whole other level of loss of like, this was not how it was supposed to be. Like, this is not the feeding experience that you or I were supposed to have. It's supposed to be this like magical, beautiful thing. And it's not, you know, in lots of different ways, I think. So, um, so I would put the, the breast milk in there and then, you know, we were just literally feeding him on a schedule because other than that, he would not eat, you know, he's not strong enough to breastfeed, wouldn't take a bottle even. So that was, and, you know, they don't cry because they have no hunger drive. So you've got to get the nutrients in them somehow. And so we had to learn how to use the system and do the settings so that it would, you know, um, exhaust the bag, you know, in a certain amount of time. So it's not too fast to, you know, screw up his stomach. It's just like all of that, that was all terrifying too, you know, and just, you know, I remember sometimes just being like very, very sad and depressed that I was pouring milk into a bag and that's how he was eating. And I was like, this sucks, you know, like none of this is how it's supposed to be. And, you know, you got just very similar to the NICU, you, you have nightmares about all those sounds. Like they don't leave you the sound of the, 
of the feeding equipment like that that just that pulsating sound of it you know emptying into him like just will never go away so you know we did that and then after four months and so after you know and then you're just like boop close up the mickey button and and that was that and then you'd have to clean around the mickey button um because obviously sometimes milk would would um you know, kind of spill out when you were hooking it up or taking it down. So you have to clean around it. You have to be careful about infection, which is of course also terrifying just in general with small children about infection. Um, and then I can't remember why we had to change the Mickey button, but there were times um, where, you know, it had to be changed. And I remember one night, you know, sitting there and Joey was hooked up for a feeding and oh, also you had to elevate them at a certain angle so that they didn't get any reflux. So it's just like this whole mechanical system, you know, mm -hmm. for a child. And so um, Joey was, you know, a couple months older at this point, like definitely not anywhere close to one or anything like that, but he was just propped up on the couch, you know, getting his nighttime feeding, bebopping around and just kicking his legs, which of course was always so awesome because we're like, oh my God, <laughs> movement, you know, right. <laughs> some, some kind of voluntary movement. And he just caught his leg in such a sense that he just hit that cord and it oh. pulled that Mickey button out of his stomach. Oh. And there was milk coming out of his stomach and like, I will never forget the scene and just like the panic. And he, he didn't know anything about it. He had no knowledge of it. He was not bothered. He didn't know anything about it. So, you know, at first your thought is like, Oh my God, isn't that painful? But you know, other than that, like it being an open wound essentially in his stomach and things coming out, he was not troubled by it. And so, you know, then we just went into this panic mode of like, Oh my God, what are we supposed to do right now? We have to, both stop this um, this milk from from pouring out, but also like now we have to put in a new Mickey button. And so I remember, <laughs> it's like a super um, somewhat embarrassing, but like we joke about it story. So Joe was like going out, you know, this is probably eleven o'clock at night, and <laughs> and you had to get a lubricant. So he had to go to the store and buy KY jelly to <laughs> like put this Mickey button back in and like I'm sure the people at the store were like what are you doing buying this you know at 11 o'clock at night you know and then yeah. we're like if only you knew this has nothing to do with its intended use like it had to be you know a particular type of lubricant and so you know he's very good in that situation of you know medical kind of panic in a sense where I'm just literally running around like my a chicken with its head cut off and he <laughs> he can take like a level approach once he calms down and he's like I already got my supplies this is what we need to do and you know we'll take on that that burden where you know he's the one that gives the growth hormone shot every night where I'm just like I don't ever want to do it unless I have to you know type of a thing um so I think that's a good way that we kind of complimented each other in that situation because it was just like generally terrifying, you know, to, to, you have this tiny little child who already oh. is medically fragile and you've got to put the button back in. And then, you know, th there's like a balloon underneath the skin. So you have to inflate that balloon so that it kind of anchors itself and doesn't come back out. Um, wow. so yeah, he used that for seven months. So for seven months, that was how, you know, he was fed. And after four months where I just couldn't continue, I just couldn't maintain pumping in a way that was you know, made me feel happy. And, you know, I would come home from work to try to see him. And I was like, instead of hanging out with him and playing with him, I'm like pumping over here in the corner. Right. Like, this is not how I want our interactions to be. And I had to mentally get around like using 
formula and like be like, okay, this is okay. And, you know, um, and at that time we were vegan. So it was very important to us to not be using um, any cow's milk. So we were able to find, um, you know, soy formula. And um, so, so then we switched over to that and, you know, just got formula for him. And then I'm not, I don't really know how, how the conversation started, but around month seven, we started going down the lane of like, okay, let's see if, if food could be a possibility. And then, then we had to go through all the swallow study stuff. And then it's still terrifying just to like give him food in general. So, you know, and he kept the Mickey button in, but you had to keep it in for a certain amount of time, even if you didn't use it, you know, just in case you still needed it or things like started going in the other direction. And, you know, then it was just a whole nother milestone when, we were able to, to close, like take out the Mickey button, you know, it was like definitely a ceremony of like, boop, this thing is coming out and, and you know, we're going to close this up. But that was another surgery, you know, for him to go in and have that closed up um, in a way that's, you know, safe. And again, not going to um, breed infection. And at that same time, we were like, well, let's just kill two birds with one stone with these surgeries. Because at that time, that surgery was also to help his um, testicles descend because they, you know, often don't in, mm -hmm. in, Crater Willie Babies and his didn't. And we did some of the um, injections to see if you could stimulate, you know, the hormones to get them to come down and they still didn't. So at that point, you know, the, the next step was to have surgery to bring them down. So we're like, well, we'll just do that and the Mickey button at the same time. Wow. Aren't we, you know, really resourceful here. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> right. So just, you know, just like the, the surgical aspect and the medical aspect to it, looking back on it, um, it was just, yeah, a whole lot, you know, a whole other chapter, even for kids that don't have Prada Willie, you know, just medical stuff is really, it's uh, really nerve wracking. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing how quickly you have to learn how to be their provider. Like you Absolutely. said, situations where they pull the, the core, the yeah, just boop, kicked oh, it right can, out. Yeah. I can imagine how terrifying that would be. I mean, it was so terrifying. And I think, you know, yeah, Joe can do the, he does the in the moment, like the stressful things where yeah. I'm the one behind the scenes. <laughs> you know, I've made all of the calls to Medicaid. I'm doing all of the paperwork. I'm setting up all the appointments for the therapy. Like that's not mm -hmm. his skill set at all. Like email and phone calls to him are like oh my god that sounds like a nightmare but you know so that's what I can kind of get Joey ready for and then yeah at nighttime Joe's doing the shot Joe's doing you know other things that you know I just would rather not do unless I have to so um it's a good it's a good balance in that sense and sometimes you know as you know all the medical stuff and the paperwork and the phone calls like it could be a uh, full-time job I yeah. mean it's, it's just it's unbelievable and the amount of stamina that you have to have to keep going in the right. process, like just boggles my mind because I think about people who don't have the time or they don't have the stamina or don't, they don't have the language to try to figure it out. Um, cause it's, it's really like a whole nother language, you know? Um, but you just got to keep going and going and going. And when you think you can't go anymore, you got to keep going for another two days because nobody's calling you back and you've got to keep calling them. And you know, it's just, it's, it's truly exhausting. How how old was Joey when he got on growth hormone? Uh, he was um, about nine or ten months old. And, you know, the way that we got on to that was really, you know, we had the diagnosis. And it was really just, a, you know, just one of those, like, small world things where my sister at the time was in Georgia. And 
I don't even know really what the original connection was, but she knew somebody who knew somebody whose daughter had Prader Willie and oh, they have this doctor um, that maybe you could reach out to, to, you know, see how they could help to, you know, uh, I don't know, just like this person specializes in that. And of course it was Dr. Miller. And, um, you know, I remember, and kind of about at that same time, you know, we had heard about growth hormones and, and knew that that was kind of something to, to have on our radar. And we were seeing, we were going to the children's hospital in Delaware, A.A. DuPont, which is tremendous, but the endocrinologist there, you know, just straight up was like, nope, I'm not comfortable doing growth hormones um, for children under, I think he said three, or, you know, or whatever he said. He's like, it's too much unknown, not willing to do it. And so it was really only by um, the grace of God that we were able to link up with Dr. Miller at that same time, because as you know, she's just so adamant that that has to begin as early as possible for all of those, you know, for cognitive development, for physical development, you know, for all of those things. Otherwise, you know, we would have just been probably at Delaware and been like, all right, well, I guess we just got to wait, you know, um, and things could have been very different. So um, it was just kind of a chance you know, chance meetup of a couple of different things coming together. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, Dr. Miller was instrumental in yeah. on growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, any- out here, even at UCSF, they were like, ah, no, we don't really. Yeah, yep. So, no. um, and it turns out she is like 45 minutes away from my mother-in-law in Florida. Oh my God. That's so funny. Which was awesome because I don't know that yeah. we would have been able to make the trip. So it was like, sure. oh, we're going to sure. visit Donu. Sure. And- so. Yeah, no, that's awesome too. I, I mean, and I remember the first time I emailed her, um, I was like, well, you know, she's a doctor. She's not going to respond or she's not going to respond for a while. And I remember laying there on the couch, checking my email. I'm like, oh my God, Dr. Miller just re- wrote back. Like, yeah. is, it, is this real? You know, and even yeah. still, you know, you can just shoot off an email. You can, you know, and, and, I, and I wish I would do a better job of writing her to be like, hey, look at these awesome things that Joey is doing instead of always like writing her when I'm right. having challenges or having questions because I know how much she cares about the kids and she really does love hearing about their successes and it gives her hope. So I need to do a better job of that. But also she is someone who's in your corner when, you know, you're just, you don't know what to do. So let's talk a little bit about how Joey is now, like how PWS is manifesting in him at at eight. Sure. Um, You know, Joey is an exceptional human being, you know, and I think to, to, I know it's very cliche, but to know Joey is to love Joey. And man, you know, he is, he is a really, really special, special person. And um, I, I think, you know, he, as he's now eight, you know, I think really probably in the last year, yeah, I've been able to see like, these are the things he's interested in. And these are the things that get him excited. And these are the things that don't. And, you know, like being able to, as I think like you, you want to do with a parent with all of your kids, but put them in front of opportunities that are going to both challenge them, but excite them. Um, but that also, you know, like ultimately you're trying to look for their happiness, right? You know, you want them to be safe and cared for and healthy and well, and, you know, and, you know, just, you know, we'll worry about gratefulness later, <laughs> you know, all those other like bigger life, life goals, but, you know, you just want them to just thrive. And, you know, I would say that by and large, I would say that Joey is thriving in a way that um, 
I wouldn't have been able to comprehend that he could, you know, back on that day when he got the diagnosis and the walls were up and, you know, it just feels like your earth is shattering all around you. You know, he, um, he, he, he loves to read. He loves to dance. He loves to, um, watch things on TV that are full of stories and fantasy. Um, and he likes to watch things on TV that he is reading about or read about. Like he likes to find that parallel of, okay, I'm reading, um, you know, this series, like the Boxcar Children. Now let me go to Amazon and see if there's a Boxcar Children show. Like he likes that carryover. Um, I think Joey is someone um, who's always, you know, I, I don't know if he can articulate this. Of course he can't, but he is someone who is comfortable with the things that he likes and he likes doing the things that he likes and he is fine to be by himself like he will be fine to take some books and go into a room and read and you know like he is he can take care of himself in a sense of like free time you know can joey uh like pack his lunch or make his meals no but i also do those things for lots of different reasons um but he's not somebody who needs a lot of social interaction with other people to feel like to feel good or to feel okay and i think you know, sometimes the downside is that in school, social connections can be challenging, as we know, for lots of kids, but especially people with with special needs and with different needs. Um, so I think that's what we've been talking about in school a lot lately is how to get him in situations where he can connect, he can work on connecting with other people because he's always going to be a little bit behind developmentally, you know, math is not even close to being on grade level. Um, so instead of, you know, having him, because he can't work with other people on math projects, because he's going and doing different math and lower level math, you know, how can he find other opportunities to connect with people so that he's got one or two friends, at least that he identifies on a daily basis that he's connected with. Um, so I think like I'm seeing those challenges evolve a little bit more and that play out a little bit more. But um, I think, you know, Joey, one of the things that always imp has impressed me about Joey, even, you know, looking back on, on, on him in the NICU, you know, like, and Joe just said this to him last night, like he is tough as nails and he is. And, you know, Joe was telling Emil, you know, you may get in on your brother cause he's not as fast as you or, you know, he's not X or Y as you, but damn, he is tough as nails. And he is. And I think a lot of that has been how we've raised them, you know, to develop a sense of grit and to develop a sense of, you know, you can't quit and you got to keep going. But cognitively, Joey understands that. And, you know, sure, there's things that he doesn't want to do sometimes, like we, we all don't. And we're good about giving him breaks. But the physical aspect of Joey has been something that we've always placed as a high priority, you know, exercise and healthy habits and healthy eating and um, doing that together as a family and role modeling that importance. But you, know, you cannot show me a kid, let alone an eight-year-old Crater Willie, who is pulling a sled around the house with a weight on the sled because he's getting physical exercise and he's working out and you know, he does private yoga and he's done horseback riding and he's got a trampoline and like, we've just gone balls to the wall in that area, um, particularly. And I think as a result, it's developed a sense of self-confidence for Joey. And that's very important for us, um, to see, like, there are going to be some tough things that are going to come in life. And because of your situation, 
And, you know, I think probably the greatest thing was when he had a physical a physical fitness test in gym last year. Um, and he came home and he said, you know, daddy today was the, the, the physical test, you know, whatever it's called presidential test was what we used to call it back in the day. You know, we had this and, um, you know, I, we had to run and, you know, I just told myself, Krylo, don't quit. And that's kind of the family motto that, that Joe primarily has come up with, but we've all tried to incorporate. And he was like, Krylo's don't quit. And I just kept running and I got, you know, 17. I'm like, I don't know what the hell a 17 means, you know, in the grand scheme, but like to Joey, he got that, like, you don't quit and you keep going. And I think, you know, that's how I'm seeing him, him evolve is like, either I'm going to not quit, I'm going to work hard in gym class or in my exercises with daddy or when I'm doing this, but I'm also going to work hard and like keep reading this book in its entirety (laughs) before I finish. And he'll just plow through books. Like it's nobody's business. So you know, he's funny and he's kind and he's loving. Um, and he loves, you know, he's always loved Disney. He loves everything from, you know, uh, you know, Peppa Pig to, I don't know, Hocus Pocus. Like he just falls on both ends of the spectrum. Um, and he's just a really, really sweet kid who, you know, we're just all so, so, so much better because of, you know, by having him in our lives and around us. So He's, he's pretty darn cool. Yeah, he sounds like a wonderful, wonderful kid. Yeah, he's, he's fun. You know, he's easy. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's easy to be around. I mean, it's like, yes, like, sometimes, you know, he's just in a funk of a day. Or sometimes, you know, his picking of his fingers drives me up the wall because it stresses me out, you know. just and, and, and I think really what stresses me out is knowing he has that anxiety and how do I take that away from him. Um, but I can't, you know, and I see him pick and he's, you know, his fingers are all chewed up and they're a mess, you know, because, because of that root cause of, of, of what's going on. But, you know, like he, like, you can just talk to him and he's funny and he makes jokes and he gets your jokes and, you know, he, um, he'll tell you like it is sometimes, or he'll, he'll tell me last night, you know, daddy's the daddy's my best daddy's my best parent. And I'm like, dang, Joe, you know, like that, that's kind of tough, but you know, like, he's, he's a loving kid in that sense. And I, and I'm glad that he's getting to a place where he's able to express emotions. And I've noticed that a lot lately is like, there's been more of all types of emotions, sadness and, you know, happiness and frustration. And I think helping him articulate that is really important. So, you know, those times when he's having meltdowns, cause those times are still there and they're probably always going to be there. We can at least try to understand more about what he's going through instead of just like, man, you're really having like a really terrible meltdown right now. And I don't know what to do. And you're stressing out and I'm stressing out and we're in public. <laughs> this really sucks, you know, right now. So, um, yeah, yeah just, just <laughs> all of, all of the, those aspects. Those meltdowns I I'm finding are the, um, or the fear of them, I guess, are like the, the hardest part these days. Yeah. And, and you try to work your day around it to avoid it. And I think, you know, sometimes Joe says to me, like, you can't always not do something because he's going to have a meltdown. Like sometimes you just got to push through and he's got to see that. And, and I understand like rationally where he's coming from, but of course my first instinct is like, well, why would I ever want to make him upset? You know? And, and I, and like, I get that when I step back, but it just, it really depends on what the actual situation is, you know? So it's, it's a little bit of both sometimes, but you know, and when they happen in school and, you know, we just kind of are coming out of a really rough, three weeks in school, like that's, 
really difficult for lots of people for lots of reasons and lots of ways. And there's a lot of emotions that go through it. And, you know, it's, it's, um, that's can be a real challenge. He's mainstreamed and he has a one-on-one aide with him all throughout the day. And he's always had that ever since kindergarten. Um, so, and he gets pulled out for different things. Like he'll stay in the class for, for example, the math level instruction, because the teacher wants him to hear what they're talking about and the general concepts. But can Joey do uh, multiplication right now? Definitely not. You know, so he stays in there and he listens to the lesson and then he and the aide go out over to the sensory room or the resource room and they're doing a, a, a different kind of math lesson that is more kind of fit for him, but it's also challenging and trying to get him up, but not, not so challenging that he just obviously cannot comprehend this and then nobody's getting anywhere, right? Because he's frustrated and he can't understand it and the AIDS doesn't know how to teach it. So, um, and he comes out for speech twice a week. Um, he used to come out for PT, but he doesn't do that anymore. And he still comes out for OT um, a couple times a month. I'm not really sure off the top of my head. So, you know, for the most part, yes, um, he is. And that's always, I guess I'm kind of just like, well, I'd rather do what's best for Joey. I, I value him being mainstreamed, but I also want him to be in a place where he can be successful. Um, and for me, his grades have never particularly been a level, uh, an indicator or a measure of his success. You know, for me, I'm just like, are you happy to get up and go to school every day? <laughs> you know, like, are you self-motivated to learn? You know, and that for me is at least for right now, and maybe for always to some extent, what I care about a little bit more so than like, you know, are you, are you bringing home A after A after A after A after A, you know? Um, I think he's, he's more interested to do things and willing to do things when he's self-motivated. And sometimes the, the challenging parts are coming because the content is getting harder and that makes him less motivated to want to do things. And then he becomes more resistant. So it's very much a, you know, a cycle to it. So, you know, we're just take it one, one step at a time. That sounds like how it is for Freya. I mean, she's yeah. mainstreamed and gets pulled out. And, you know, the same thing. Like, I just, I want her to, you know, be happy to go to school and to enjoy right. her time there. Well, I guess, I, what, okay, so I wanted to ask, like, do you, are you, I do. are you able yeah. to keep working? Um, so when, when Joey was born, I worked in residence life um, at the University of Delaware, and I was a complex coordinator, so I kind of, had about 28 undergraduate RAs underneath me and four graduate um, level hall directors and ran a complex of, you know, a couple of residence halls and about a thousand students. So uh, we lived on campus because that was a requirement of the position. And so, you know, it was super, super great. And, and, you know, I'll never be able to articulate like how much I'm grateful for that experience at that time because, you know, my apartment was connected to my office. We were in the residence hall you know, because Joey was a quiet baby, you know, he came to meetings with me and that was, that was a, a totally fine thing. It was not disruptive. So it was a very like, and I had worked there. Um, I've been a student there and I worked in residence life as an RA and just kind of came up through the ranks. So I was, you know, like this was my family, you know, the work, the work people that I had, you know, it wasn't just kind of a, a different environment. And so that really helped ease me into the transition. So I worked there for 
about two years. And then my husband applied to graduate schools to get his PhD in philosophy. And we knew we were going to move and he got accepted to Purdue. Um, and at that time I had Emil and Emil was about five months old when we moved. So we moved out here, you know, about five, five, six years ago or whatever. And um, I didn't work when we first moved here for a couple of reasons, mostly because I was like, well, I got to get situated with a whole new state. I got to do all this again with Joey, you know, like setting up all the things and, you know, all the therapies and they're coming into the house. And, you know, plus like, you know, by the time you put two kids in daycare, what's the point, you know, of working to some sense, because all that money is just going right back out the door. Um, and so eventually I was ready to start job searching, but it also took me a year to get a job at Purdue. So looking back on it again, like another thing I'm very grateful for was to be able to be home with Emil in a very important year of his life, as difficult as that was in a lot of sense, he was a very difficult <laughs> baby love him to death. Um, but, you know, to help, to help take care of Joey too, and, and make sure that had some stability to it in a place where, we, you know, we knew no one and, you know, we didn't have the same resources. So then I went back I got a job as an honors advisor in the honors college at Purdue um, and was very much in a nine to five, you know, type of setting. So pretty formal environment, which is what I wanted coming out of residence life because residence life was very flexible. Um, but, you know, I was having meetings at 10 o'clock at night and, you know, that wasn't really something I, I wanted to continue while still, while now having, you know, a, a pretty, um, specific family situation. So, um, yeah, I came to an office and, you know, figured out that whole setup and, you know, eventually Joey, Joey started preschool and then Emil started preschool and, you know, then, um, then kindergarten and elementary school. So, you know, a lot of their formative years have been here, um, in West Lafayette and it will be difficult, you know, to leave in a sense, because we have a lot of really good memories here, and it, it'll be hard to follow up a lot of the foundational things that happened here, you know, walking and talking, um, and a lot of the firsts, you know, they happened here, so, so yeah, I work now, you know, still nine to five every day, um, I've got, you know, I probably take a little bit more flexibility than I probably should, but um, I've moved up in, in the unit, and now I'm the director of advising, so, you know, like today, I got to get the kids off the bus, because Joe has a doctor's appointment and that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm very grateful to have um, the flexibility to do that. Nice. Yeah. Good for yeah. you. Yeah. I know that is, um, I mean, I've, I was a stay at home mom for 14 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is the first year that all my kids are in school. And, mm. but I still, I go on every field trip because it's, yep, a, yep, it's a Waldorf yep. school. There's a lot of walking and nature yep. trips and, um, yeah. And I just feel like I need to kind of always be available Absolutely. just in case Freya does not have a one-on-one -on -one aid. Um, maybe mm -hmm. if she did, I would feel a little more, um, mm -hmm. but, I, and I just know that that is an issue for a lot of families who are basically yes. special needs that it is hard for them yeah. to, to have jobs and, you know, kind of have. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, and there, there are weeks and there are days where, you know, it's, it's difficult in both areas. I feel like I'm not giving my all to work here. I'm distracted. You know, I feel guilty about not being able to, you know, be home. And, you know, when things come up at school, I'm the person that gets called. I'm the one that, you know, comes in for all of the meetings. I also feel the same as you. I go on all the field trips because that's important. So it's definitely a difficult balance at times, but, you know, it's important to me at least um, in some ways that they see that I have, 
kind of this other part of my identity. And, you know, I know they don't understand that now and it might not always be that way, you know, in terms of whether or not I work, but you know, that they have a sense of like, well, you know, she's doing something. I don't really know what it is, but yeah. you know, she's, she's, <laughs> She's got some office, I think. I don't know. You know, yeah. they just want to know if there's snacks here when they get right. here. That's <laughs> so they're like, where's the good stuff? So, yeah. Well, and my kids see me do the podcasting, and I'm also a writer and a poet, and they see that. They just don't realize that it doesn't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so fulfilling in so many other ways, and I think that's, that's so amazing, yeah, to have a creative outlet. And I think, you know, for me, like trying to figure out how I can do that and also work and have right. kids, you know, is, is difficult, but yeah, right. That's, that's like the goal is to, you know, to do something that's personally fulfilling and to follow something you're passionate about. So that's, that's yeah. really awesome. So have you had a conversation with Joey about his, his syndrome? Like, have you sat him down and said, <laughs> right. what's going on? We have not sat him down and talked in that direct of a way, but we have started talking about really as a response to like questions that Emil has, you know, like when I'll prepare, like the other night, you know, we had, um, you know, turkey burgers for dinner. Obviously we're not vegan anymore, as you can see, but, um, <laughs> so, uh, maybe one day, you know, I'll get back to it. But, um, so we had turkey burgers the other night and, um, you know, instead of, putting his on bread, you know, he had quinoa on the side or he had no bread or like, you know, well, if we'll have sweet potato fries, you know, he's not going to get a burger on bread and also sweet potato fries. And so it's really more so Emil of like, why are these plates different? You know, he'll ask questions and say something like, well, you know, Joey's belly's a little bit different than everybody's and, you know, he just needs certain things. So it doesn't upset his belly or whatever. So this year when I went to doc, took him to Dr. Miller because it's always the two of us. I, I said to him, you know, we, we go to see Dr. Miller, you know, because, you know, she sees other kids that are like you in a sense of, you know, um, I think I just said like generally like you. So, you know, we haven't had like that direct conversation yet. And I think part of me in a sense is like, Joey listens to every single thing that we say. He's aware of it, you know, because he, he parrots it back in, in, you know, two days later in a different circumstance where I was just like, oh God, he was listening to that. You know, <laughs> it's that. Um, but I also, I guess right now, I don't feel like, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter if that makes sense. Like, you know, I don't think Joey would think anything of it, you know, and I also don't know that he would understand. So you know, um, there was an incident somewhat recently where we were driving home from some doctor's appointment, as we do a lot of those, and he told me just out of the blue that someone at lunch gave him half of their sandwich. And I like had this like panic in my mind. I was like, what the hell? You know? And I was like, what? You know, and he could see from my face, he could read my reaction. And we're like in the car. So he's reading it through the rear view mirror, you know, that I was like freaked out and like, not mad at him, but just like, well, this is a new situation, you know? And I was like, well, what was the sandwich, bud? And he was like, I don't know. And I know when he gets very sheepish and very quiet, you know, he's afraid of saying something is going to be in trouble. And, and it literally took me so long to pull that out of him. And I just kept saying, I'm not mad, bud. I'm just curious what it was, you know, just tell me. And I had to totally change my approach to show uh -huh. him that it was a safe place to share. And he was like, 
it was a ham and cheese sandwich. And I was like, oh dear God, we do not eat ham, you know? And in my mind, and I was like, okay, bud, well, um, you know, like that's really nice of such and such to want to share with you. But like, it's super important that you only eat what is in your lunchbox that mommy gives you. And if you see something at lunch that looks good to you or that someone else has, like come home and tell me about it. And then like, we can make our own version. You know, like one day he came home and someone had Cheetos at lunch. And I was like, yeah, that's not something we have, you know? And he was just kind of like really intrigued by these Cheetos and he really wanted them. Um, and so, you know, I think just like trying to figure out in those types of moments of like, I know we're going to have to start explaining the why a little bit more because he is a very curious and smart child, but I also need him to follow the rules. So, you know, just trying to figure out what, how, how to say it in a way that helps him understand, but also do what we're asking. Um, and there's, yeah, there's just times during the day at school, I have no idea what he's doing. You know, I, that could have been happening, you know, for an entire week and I, I would have never known, you know, so. So, I think so it's is come the up, A not with him at lunch then? Well, she must, she doesn't like sit by him, but I also have never thought to say to the school, hey, like, he doesn't get anybody else's food. Um, but I know that she must be there because if I'll send in something, you know, like in a tight package or something, I know Joey would not be able to open that by himself. Uh, and, but sure enough, you know, it's been opened and eaten or, or whatever. So I think like, you know, there's probably a couple of them that watch the entire cafeteria and she probably watches him, but not as much as I probably would have ever thought to like prime her about. So I think it's also, you know, trying to find the balance of, you know, what everybody else has on their plate all throughout the day in terms of, you know, the teacher's got 20 kids to, to look after and, you know, they all have all these other different responsibilities. You know, I don't ever want it to seem like, well, I expect you to look at Joey and only Joey all day, every day and never take your eyes off of him. Like I'm aware of what you're trying to balance, but yeah, I would have never thought to say to her, you know, you know, Hey, FYI, if you ever see anybody else giving him food, um, you know, stop that you know so so I think like it's going to start to come up with things like that and I guess honestly Joe and I haven't really ever talked about like how and when I think we're just kind of like rolling with it as we go um but but surely Joe you know Joey wears a brace so like there's already a visual difference but Joey has never asked me why he wears a brace and no one else does you know he knows he wears it because it helps his back but you know he just has never asked that and so in one sense I don't know if he's just kind of I don't want to say self-centered, but he's self-centered in that way. Or, but I also think it's just his general relaxedness of just like, yeah, this is, this is what I got going on, you know, and I'm sure you've got something else going on, but you know, I just can't see it. You know, I, I don't know. So no, we've never really had, it was a very long winded answer to like, no, we've never really had a very direct talk with him, but I guess I, I don't, I could be totally wrong, but I think you just also have to do what's best for your family and, and what you feel their dynamic is. And you know, right now we're just like, you know, these are the things that are important to us. And these are the things that we want you all to do to be healthy and well and, and resilient. And, you know, uh, trying to teach them life lessons aside from just, you know, why you can't do this because on this day, it's going to be a problem. Like we want you to, to be great in this way because it's going to aid you in all of life, you know? So, um, so yeah, that's a very long winded answer. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a tough one. I mean, I we, yeah. we talked the same to Freya about kind of her belly. And I think on some level, it helps for her to have that information to know like what is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that she needs to eat healthy things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I just recently had a conversation with her about uh, trying to explain like DNA and I mean it was kind of sweet we you know she just had had another meltdown and so right, I was like right. hey Freya let's go you know let's go for a walk and we walked down to the right. river and we sat by the river and right. you know we just um talked about DNA a little bit like I was just talking about like what you know I don't know what she understood it was a very mom daughter sure the river talk and and she listened and then she laid her head in my lap and fell asleep for like 20 right. minutes which right no and that's that's so like so sweet you know in a lot of ways and I think like because we as mothers take on a lot of that that role and that responsibility I mean I don't know what your dynamic is but that's definitely you know I, like mm-hmm. I said I'm the one that that does all the doctor's appointments and I set up everything and you know I'm with him doing all of that stuff I go to all the school you know I'm in I'm the one that's connected and engaged with the school so it does create different opportunities for us than it does you know for for the dads and the kids and and I think you know it's also probably different for you guys because there's a dad and a daughter whereas Joey it's a dad you know it's a dad and a son which you know just like that gender difference in and of itself is a little bit different but you know like it sounds very Norman Rockwell of you and that's super awesome (laughs) like that (laughs) you know like it wasn't yeah (laughs) but hearing about it you know it is so yeah and I think it's important for us to try to have those moments with them because sometimes a lot of it is just like a shit show you know yeah. and it's just you know kind of like you're we're carrying around the moment and exactly and we're carrying around that burden of you know the meltdown and uh so it's good to try to overcompensate for in other ways what do you think about the future like what does that look like for your family I mean I know he's only eight so that's kind of a yeah. question but is that I mean I think in some ways being parents of, of these children we do have to think a little bit more perhaps about the future in relation to our kids yeah um you know for me I I guess the best way that I can put it and I and I want the same for Emil too right you know not just for Joey but like I just want Joey to get on a path that he has self-identified as something that will bring him personal fulfillment and health and you know and I'll be there right behind him cheering him on, you know, kind of his own path to, to, I guess for me, I will define success for Joey as like, Joey's happy, Joey's well taken care of. And whether that means Joey's living independently or he's not living independently, you know, that's, you know, neither here nor there, whether Joey, you know, goes on to, you know, go to college or not go to college. That doesn't really matter to me either. I mean, there's lots of kids who, uh, don't want to go to college anyway, you know, and their parents force them to go to college or if college is not what they need to do based on what they're interested in. You know, you can go to a trade school or you can go to, you know, get some other kind of certification and be and just as happy. So I think in one sense, there's way too much emphasis placed on college, you know, it's like, well, this is what you do. Um, and so for me, it's just, yeah, like, um, whatever Joey wants to do, I just want him to be doing something. You know, I think for us, it's like, you you can't just sit and be idle. You know, you got to be proactive and self-advocating. And, um, you know, I remember a couple, oh, maybe like a year ago or something like, I don't know how my sister and I got talking about it, but she was just like, oh man, you know what? You know, it'd be really awesome. And like, could probably hit on a lot of different things for Joey is like, you know, if you, you guys were in a house and like, he had like an apartment above the garage, 
you know, so like he's close to you, but he's also living independently. And I was just like, oh my God, that sounds like a dream. You know, like then I never have to let Joey go. It's like, let's be honest, that ain't happening. But then he does have a sense of independence. And, um, and so, yeah, like, like if that's what that future looks like, and if he is, you know, reading all day and, you know, going to, to a job that, you know, is doing, you know, a certain kind of labor, a certain kind of thing, you know, that's great. Like I literally will, it will be me. Like I have to, I'm going to have to be the one <laughs> that everybody's like, stop, like, let him fly, let him go. You know, you, you and I think I, that's just a mode I've been in for eight years. Right. Is just this like super overprotective, super anxious, um, helicopter parent and so it's going to have to be me to pull back and let him flourish into what makes him successful because you know I think Joey's developing to that just fine um so I'm going to have to be the one to kind of break off and for and for Emil too like you know I'm uh I'm, I'm totally that kind of person just in different ways for both of them so I just whatever brings him happiness and uh you know, any, any of his other, you know, basic needs, I will be happy to meet for him. I will provide him shelter, uh, for the rest of my life. So yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be excited to get there, you know, cause I think again, if you would have told me when we were in the NICU, um, that future doesn't seem so certain, like a future doesn't seem so certain, let alone the possibility that you might get to create that future or brainstorm that future or, uh, develop it. Like, yeah, there was no way I would have been like, okay, yeah, that, that, that sounds good. That'll be a possibility. So I think it's also just like slowly walking up to that step because there's still so much nervousness and hesitancy about it. Um, so we'll see, you know, I don't, don't quite know, but, uh, there'll be something with storytelling and role-playing and, you know, just Joey will have a, a tremendously large grin on his face because he'll be happy and that's what matters. 